So if you want to follow along, our text is Romans 5. Um, in the Pew Bible, it's page uh, 942. And I've chosen this text for today um, because it lines up with where we're going in our series. For Lent, we've been preaching through the values of grace, and I'm actually looking at two values that work in tandem today. The first one is the value of grace, and then the other is growth. Grace and growth, they work together. And so I picked this text from Romans 5 because it hits on both things, and we'll see that in a minute. But I can't talk about the topic of grace without having Dietrich Bonhoeffer's opening paragraphs for his book, The Cost of Discipleship, come to mind. In, in that book, he, he makes a contrast between what he calls costly grace versus cheap grace. And cheap grace is found all over the place, in the church and other places, where people just kind of check out. They go, I said the sinner's prayer, um, I don't have to worry about hell, I can just now do whatever I want. And he, he goes in this scathing indictment against that kind of cheap grace. And instead of the costly grace that invites us into a new kind of life with God, the, the cost of discipleship, and he comes to this conclusion. He says, just because it was free to you does not mean it was not costly because it cost God his blood on the cross. It was paid for handsomely, this free grace that you enjoy. So it's really a costly grace. And with that, he launches into an exposition on the Sermon on the Mount and the call to discipleship. It's a powerful thing. And I want to, I want to be clear, we can't earn our salvation. We don't contribute anything to it other than merely coming broken in in repentance. It is by faith alone that we are saved. But as the saying goes, it is by, by faith alone you're saved, but not faith that remains alone. So it has to bring forth works and fruit and a transformed life. In fact, real faith will always produce works James, the apostle, says that's, that's how you know you've got faith is because the works are showing it. But if you get that the wrong way and you think, I do the works so that I'm saved, you've got everything out of order and that's not how it works. So it starts with grace, a grace that then leads to growth. So grace, when it's understood, will lead to growth. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're someone walking with God, I want to ask you this question. Are you growing? Are you growing? Are you different because of the season you've been in walking with the Lord and you are more like Christ in some way. You're getting breakthrough maybe in an area of sin or temptation. You're getting um, more of the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in your life. You are, you are quicker to serve, quicker to put down your own self, these kind of things. I know some of you are because I know many of your stories and it's a blessing to have been in the same church as long as I have because you don't really notice certain types of growth over, you know, a year or two, but over 10, you can really see it in your own life and other people's lives, that people are really growing in their faith. Are you one of them? Are you growing in your faith? If you are still questioning Christianity and trying to decide, is this something for me? Am I willing to live this life? I want to caution you about getting the cart before the horse, which is that idea of cleaning up your act in order to be worthy to come to God, or I got to start living right so I can start going to church so God will accept me. You know, the problem with that is how clean is clean enough? How good is good enough? We're talking on a scale of holiness here, God's holiness. And is there enough holiness in your own life to somehow be worthy of God? The answer is no. No, there is not. Not one of us is worthy. Not one. 
And so the gospel message is scandalizing in that sense. Not one of us is worthy, and so God comes and offers us this salvation. We were preparing for the baptisms on Easter. We have, I think, 14 or 15 people being baptized on Easter morning, and they, it ranges all the way from newborn babies to two middle-aged adults, um, and it's kind of exciting to see the spread. And um, one of the parents asked a brilliant question in the class. Um, this is a parent of school-age kids and, and said, I'm, I'm wondering if we should hold back our kid from being baptized because they still have problems between the siblings. They still do mean things to their sibling. And, and I, said, I said, well, what, does your child want to be baptized? And they said, yeah. And do they, they know what the good news is? Yeah. And it opens up that question of how good is good enough? What makes one worthy of baptism or coming to church or coming to the Lord? You see, the question is not how am I good enough? It's am I bad enough? Really? Have I come to the place of recognizing my own need? Am I bad enough to go, you know what, God, I need your help. I'm a broken, miserable sinner. I need your grace. We have to come to that place. That's the real question. Jesus said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And he said, I've come for sinners. And it's the people who don't think they're sick that the gospel doesn't speak to them. Jesus has nothing for them. And they find it irrelevant. They don't pay attention. They don't have ears to hear. The malady is no peace with God not having peace with God. John Calvin, the reformer, in his commentary on Romans, said there are two people in this world that don't need the gospel. They don't need it because they don't know they need it. They don't think it's useful. They think it's irrelevant to them. One is the Pharisee, the man or woman who is built up in their own sense of self because of their good deeds. And they're looking at their good deeds, and they're looking at their own life, and they're saying, of course I'm going to heaven. Of course God loves me and accepts me. Look at all my good works. I deserve it. That person has no need for the gospel whatsoever. They can't even see their need. The other person is, and these are Calvin's words, not mine, the stupid sinner. The stupid sinner who is inebriated with the sweetness of his or her vices. So rather than think about, you know, what's coming or meeting God, the stupid sinner is just looking at the simple pleasures that they're getting from whatever vice they're pursuing. They're just not even at that place of knowing that they're sick and need a doctor. They just don't know it yet. And what I'm getting at here is the problem of a burden, a burden, a a guilty conscience, a heavy conscience, a sense of I am not right. I'm not right. And this is a gift from God. I want you to recognize that. It's a gift from God when you have a sense of your own guilt. It's a gift from God because it sends you to him. So the Pharisee, will get the gift of God by catching a glimpse of actual holiness. They will, they will see something about God and how holy he is, and then all of a sudden, their works are dung. They're nothing. All of a sudden, they see how hollow those efforts were and their efforts to be a good person. They realize, I'm not a good person at all. That's true goodness. The Holy Spirit gives them a glimpse of God's holiness, and then they realize that they're not holy. Or the, the stupid sinner starts to see that, you know, this the sweetness of my vices is less sweet. I've been doing this for a while, and each time I do it, it's less sweet, and I need to do more of it, and then it's less return. I mean, it's the typical addiction thing. I need more for a smaller hit each time, and it's a diminishing returns kind of a thing. When when that sinner gets to that place and goes, this isn't doing it for me anymore, they start to feel the burden, the burden that leads them to grace. 
I'm not okay with God and judgment is real and it's coming. My life needs to change. When they get to that place, then the gospel speaks huge volumes. I went back to um, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress this week and was looking through some of that in there. The allegory of Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read it, is each person has a name for their character and the protagonist is Christian. That's his name, Christian. And Christian reads the Bible and realizes that judgment is real, God is holy, and sin is going to be accounted for. And he gets this huge burden and he comes across this person called evangelist. And evangelist tells him how to get on the way to salvation. And he starts walking that way. And he, it's not very long before he comes across another character who's, whose name is Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman um, sees the burden that Christian is carrying and takes pity on him and offers him some counsel, some, some uh, counsel about the way that he is on. He said, it's a dangerous way and troublesome way that you're on. And he says, I can see that you've already fallen into, I see the dirt on your clothing from the slough of despondence that you've fallen into. And I want you to know that's just the beginning. If you stay on that path, you can expect this. Weariness, painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, darkness, and in a word, death. These things are certainly true, having been confirmed by many testimonies. And then Christian says, why, sir, this burden upon my back is more terrible to me than are all these things which you have mentioned. And so Mr. Worldly Wiseman offers him a way to get rid of the burden that's different than the path that he's on. And he, he talks about this other way that he can deal with the burden of his guilt and the weight of his sin. He says, there's another way. And the way has provision that's there that's cheap and good, and it will make your life more happy and there will be honest neighbors in credit and good fashion. Those are the words he puts in here. And he says, okay, tell me how to get there. And he says, do you see that high hill over there? Over yonder, I think. is what, Yeah, do you see, you see yonder high hill? It's written in that kind of language. But that high hill over there. And in the margin of my copy of Pilgrim's Progress, typed are the words Mount Sinai. So in other words, the law. If you live the law, you can get rid of the burden. Do you see that high hill over there? And Christian says, yes. And he says, by that hill you must go. And f the first house you come to, you will find a man who can help you. It says, so Christian turned out of his way. He was on the way that leads to salvation. He turned out of his way to find the easier way. Turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold... When he was now hard hit by the hill, it seemed so high, and also the side of it was next to wayside. It hung so much over that Christian was afraid to venture further, lest the hill should fall on his head. Also, the burden now seemed heavier to him than while he was in his way. Not only did the law and trying to live self-righteously and correct self-help, not only did self-help not help him, it made the burden that much heavier and it distracted him off of the way. It was those, the suffering and the weariness and the difficulty of walking the Christian life that made him tempted to consider this other way. But he found it to be awful. It didn't serve him. It was not good. So this burden is what I'm talking about here. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 5, because once you have that burden and know what it is, then the words of chapter 5 verse 1 are like fresh, cool water. Therefore, since we have been, have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for. I want peace with God, and I don't want the burden anymore. I want to give that away. I want to give the burden to him, and I want his peace. I want him to walk with me through this life. Take the burden away. 
And I love the, the perfect tense here. It is, we, ha we have been justified by faith. Perfect tense means it's happened in the past, a distinct action, it's done, but the effects of it are carrying on into the future. So I'm not currently being justified, it's done. I have been justified by faith in Christ, and now I have peace with God, the ongoing effect of that. God looks at me and he says, you are righteous, not because of my works. You are righteous because of your faith in my son. His righteousness now is yours. You are justified. And then I have peace with God. And it's an amazing thing that the reformers and others, Martin Luther made a big deal of it. They pick up this idea that I am simultaneously righteous and a sinner. That's a big cry of the Reformation. I am simultaneously, at the same time, I'm a sinner and I'm righteous in God's sight. That's, that's an amazing gift to us. And so now I can have peace with God and that burden is lifted. Now, if you skip down to verses six through eight, um, we're gonna come back to the three and four, but we're gonna skip down to six through eight. Because in six it says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. I came across um, an account from the life of T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. And in the, t the days of World War I, he was an archaeologist, he was a military man, he was traveling all over the Middle East, and apparently, well, I mean, in 1918 or whatever year it was that he was traveling, there are plenty of antics that happened in the Middle East that he could write about, but he was particularly good at telling those stories and writing he was accused at times of a little embellishment here and there, so he was a good storyteller. And because he had all these adventures, he became famous. He became known as Lawrence of Arabia, and he had all sorts of stuff. And in one of these um, biographies uh, about him, they described a journey he took with some Arabs across part of the Arabian desert. And it was a, it was a rough journey, a, a harrowing one, and things became desperate. And Food was almost gone. Water was at its last drop. Their hoods were up over their heads because, as he described it, the wind was like a flame, and it was full of stinging sand from a sandstorm. So he's on a camel, and someone in the group suddenly said, where is Jasmine? And then another said, who is Jasmine? And then a third answered, that yellow-faced man who killed a Turkish tax collector and then fled into the desert. So they had this you know, notorious sinner traveling with them on a camel. The first person said, look, Jasmine's camel has no rider. His rifle is strapped to the saddle, but Jasmine is not there. The second one said, someone has shot him on the march. A third said, he's not strong in the head. Perhaps he is lost in a mirage. He's not strong in the body. Perhaps he has fainted and fallen off of his camel. Then the first said, what does it matter? Jasmine was not worth anything. And the Arabs hunched themselves back up on their camels and rode on. But Lawrence turned and rode back the way he came from. Alone in the blazing heat, at the risk of his life, he went back. After an hour and a half's ride, he saw something against the sand. It was Jasmine, blind and mad with heat and thirst, being murdered by the desert. Lawrence lifted him up on his camel, gave him some of the last drops of precious water, and slowly plodded back to the company he had left. When he came up upon them, the Arabs looked in amazement. Here is Jasmine, they said. Jasmine not worth anything, saved by Lawrence at his own risk. Now that account, I don't, it doesn't matter how true it is, but what it does is it scandalizes us because you think here is a worthy man and an unworthy man, and the unworthy man falls into peril, and the worthy man goes after him. 
You could use it as a parable for the gospel, right? That's the point here in Romans 5, is that scarcely would someone die for a really good, a righteous person. You know, that good uh, sailor or soldier that everybody respects, he falls into trouble, and one of the guys is willing to put his life on the line to go rescue him. But not the guy that's the jerk, right? Not the guy that everybody hates. Just watch Band of Brothers. You know, it doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work. And so here they're saying, but the gospel, Paul is saying the gospel is different. It's in verse 8, the gospel is this. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Look at verse 8. It says, but God shows, and it could be translated proves, but God proves his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners or still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't once we were righteous. It wasn't once we were in any way respectable or worthy of it. It was while we were his enemies and while we were still sinning and in rebellion that Christ came and died for us the righteous for the unrighteous. This is a powerful gift. It's the gift of grace. It scandalizes us when we realize it at first, and then it heals us. God's grace. Now, there are a number of different ways to refer to God's grace. Um, one is G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Catchy little acronym, helps you stick that in your mind. One that I like is, is to recognize the definition of justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. It's getting what you don't deserve. And not only do we all need it, we need this gift, but when we look at what Christ has done, we start to want it. We realize the sacrifice he did, and we, we, we long for him. We, we want what he has, that peace that surpasses understanding. And the thing that's important about this is because grace and growth work together, it's not easy to grow. That's why sometimes we can plateau in our walk. We can get lazy. We can resist what the Holy Spirit wants to do. We can pause on that journey. We can get pulled off of that pathway into some hole in the, a slew of despondency or whatever. We can get tempted to go the wrong way. These things can happen to us. It's a long walk. And Part of God's economy for us is that he uses the difficulties of life to bring forth the growth. But the only way that works is if we are steadfast in grace, that we are set on it. So if you, now I'm going to go back to the verses I, I, I skipped over. If you go back to verse 2, it says, Through him, meaning Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We are standing in it. Think foundation, right? You pour the foundation, you build the building on top of it. You can't move that. That building is there. The grace of God is the foundation that we start building and we grow on. And we need that because it's hard. Look where it goes in, in the next verse. It says, um, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's a progression of how the difficulties of this life work. God wants to build character in us. He wants us to teach us, wants to teach us about en endurance and the usefulness of suffering. Nobody goes, ooh, sign me up. I want some suffering, Lord. But we all are like, I want to be more like Christ. I want his character. I want his ability to navigate life with that kind of grace that he had. How can I become more like him? Okay, suffering, endurance. You need to learn about hope so that all of your eggs are not in this basket, but in things to come. 
so you can let go of this life and be willing to move into what God has for the future. Self-denial, giving up your life to receive the life. All of this stuff is part of the growth piece, and we don't like it. That's why we have to start with grace. We have to recognize who God is and what he has done, and then we're more willing to rejoice. Rejoice. Consider it joy, is what James says. Rejoice in our sufferings, because I know when I suffer, God is using them. He's using them to make me more and more like Christ. So here's some application points. One, that burden. Don't, don't resist it. Don't hate it. Welcome it and say, okay, I've got this guilt burden. I've got to deal with it, and I'm going to take it to the Lord. So go to him with that burden. Now, your guilt might be that you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You think you're your own Lord of your life, and you're a slave to yourself. And so for the first time, you have to have the courage to actually say, God, I know I'm not right with you. And the preacher in church said, there's peace for me. I'm going to believe this promise, and I'm going to hand it over to you, and I'm going to become yours, and you're going to be my Lord. The prayer looks something like that, and you actually pray it. And then you start listening to him and go where he goes. And what will happen is you'll find the peace. You'll find that peace that, that he says, you are forgiven. Every week we do the absolution, and in Lent we do it at the front of the service because we've been thinking about our sins in these 40 days. And we need to hear, you are forgiven. I've forgiven you. And then peace comes. Now, the burden also might be there because you, you might have been a Christian for a long time, but you're doing something that is causing a distance between you and God, and you're feeling the guilt. Your conscience, which, by the way, is on God's side, is, is uh, prosecuting you. You're wrong on this. You're wrong on this. Repent. You got to return. Stop doing this. And the, your conscience is pointing its finger at you, and the, that burden is starting to build up. Repent of it and go back to the Lord and let him forgive you. It's that easy. And then the peace comes, and you're like, oh, okay, the accuser has no ground to stand on. I'm forgiven because of the cross. That's grace. That's grace for us. So go to him with the burden. Grace is God's response to repenting sinners. We think, if I go to him with this, if I'm honest with him, he'll smite me. You know, that idea of like, don't sit next to me, the lightning bolt's about to come right? Because eventually there is judgment. We think every time I step out of line, I'm going to, that's it. And that's not how, he's slow to anger. He's slow to that, but he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's quicker to forgive you than you are to repent. That's God's grace. That's just his, as the old liturgy says, his property is always to have mercy. That's who God is. So go to him with that burden. Second, I want you to remember Remember your own burden when you see another person's sin. Um, it's easy to look around at people that maybe are new to church or new to your Bible study or are starting to question things of faith and who could God be, and you look at their life and you stand in judgment over something that's not right about it. Don't do that. There's no grounds to do that because you were there. You are that person. Somebody came to my wife recently and said, you know, I I'm having, I'm having a problem, and I, I, think I, I think I might want to talk to your husband. And I, I love the words she said. She said, because I don't think he's very judgy. <laughs> I, I want to not be judgy. I like that. I can't be judgy, because the minute I, you know, judge someone else, I'm judging myself, because that's the message here. So I want us as a church to not be judgy. I want us as a church to be filled with grace, that not be just our name on the road sign, but actually a description of our character as people, that we are sinners saved by grace, and we welcome anybody who wants to come along on the journey. 
no judgment whatsoever. Come on, there's room for you on this way. Come with us and feel the burden lifted and get the peace of God. That's what I want for our church. So remember your own burden and what God has done in grace for you when you see somebody else. Jesus was pretty tough on people that did not have grace for others, even though they had received grace from God. I like, in particular, um, Jesus speaking to Simon the Pharisee in Luke um, chapter 7, where Simon starts judging a wo- Simon who's, who's been received, and Jesus comes into his house and, and gives him, you know, the blessing of having this great rabbi come to dinner at his house. When a sinner comes and anoints Jesus, Simon starts to judge her in Simon's own heart. And so Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, say it, teacher, and you know where this is going. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 and the other 50. When he could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And in so doing, he helped Simon see that Simon is not in touch with his own burden and how much grace God has had for him. And so therefore, he thought he was in a place to judge this woman, regardless of whatever her sins are. It doesn't matter. Because on the scale of holiness, it doesn't matter. So if my sins are here and yours are here or here, does it matter? No. We're all sinners. And yet God's grace is there for us all. So let's remember that when we see another person's brokenness come out. Remember the radical love that God has for that person because of the radical love God has for you. And then I want to encourage you to stop resisting growth in your life. Maybe there's an area that you keep tripping up on. Maybe there's something that you're doing that is keeping you from progressing. Don't be satisfied with the status quo. You're kind of in this plateau. You know, I've been a Christian for so long. I'm just kind of on this. Don't, don't get stuck there. Press in for more. Ask God for more. Ask him to show you if there's something you are doing that it, that's keeping growth from happening. We want to be more and more like Christ. We want to see more of the fruit of the Spirit. We want to be quicker to serve quicker to put ourselves down and put others first. These are hard things. They take a lifetime to learn. But let's, let's stop resisting if God is presenting for us an opportunity for that kind of growth. And again, because of the grace, first of all. Grace, when understood, leads to growth. That's the, that's the gift of God to us, and it's the invitation to discipleship. So let's be a church that is really a church of grace and growth. And would you pray with me about that? Lord, this message is almost too good to be true. We find it hard to believe that you would love us that much and accept us in our mess. But you do. 2,000 years of history shows us the joy that people in your church have, the peace instead of the burden. Father, whatever burdens have walked in these doors this morning, I pray that they would be left at the foot of your cross. I pray that your son's blood would cover those. I pray that his grace would be sufficient for us, that we would stand on that and begin to be more and more like you. And so I pray again, Lord, have mercy. In the name of Jesus, amen.